Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. I'm uh, Junie DeZille, uh, although sometimes I, I think that I should actually pronounce my name correctly, which would be Junie Desil, but it's sometimes I just don't have time to have people pronounce it properly. So Junie is fine. I'm a writer. Uh, Eat Salt, Gaze at the Ocean is my first debut collection, um, but I've been writing for as long as I remember. I also work on the side. I'm uh, the Director of Operations at the Downtown Eastside Women's Centre. I have a habit of compartmentalizing my life, so this is probably one of the first few times where I say I do this and this. I don't know how I do the two things, but here I am <laughs> doing the two things. And, but I do hope that this, uh, putting out this debut um, kind of gets me to realize that this is what I actually want to do. I want to write and to, yeah, just, just keep doing the writing thing and um, inspire others to write. And I think this journey has been great in connecting with other folks who want to write and uh, think it's this uh, mystical process. It's not. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I'm a total nerd. I love reading. I love writing. If uh, I'm actually on vacation right now, week one, uh, and I'm looking forward to just reading like all the books like a child. <laughs> As you heard, Junie is a nerd like me who loves to read. And so I was curious what her answer would be when I asked if she could be a character in any book, who she would be. So I, this book is a book I read when I was young and it was in French. So my first language is French. Um, and the book was called Rosalie, and she was this precocious, like, got into all kinds of trouble um, because whatever. Um, but she did these things because she genuinely believed that that was the way to do whatever she was doing. So if I could be that character, and I think what I liked about this character was that she just was fearless. She did what she needed to do. Um, yeah, she just had no fear, and I would love to be that person. And then, and then I could probably be any old character who's doing whatever. <laughs> but I want that sort of childlike bravery of uh, facing the world and facing whatever whatever complications that feels complicated for kids, but are probably simple. Uh, but yeah, that that bravery of, of yeah facing and and the humor that comes out from it. <laughs> Junie Desil is the author of Eat Salt, Gaze at the Ocean, which is a finalist for the 2021 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. And Junie starts our conversation by reading from the book. How to Make a Zombie Nation Salivate on the potential and continued wealth of Haiti. Greedily eye the strategic location and importance of the island panic about German interest in Haiti, panic some more over German control of international commerce, 80%. 
panic even more about the impact of unrest on American business interests, Hasco. Acquire control of the Haitian government's treasury, take Haiti's gold reserve, and transfer to Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Panic at anti-American revolts by Haitians, invoke the Monroe Doctrine, invade the island with U.S. Marines, 1915. Designate 40% of Haiti's national income to repaying debts, install American-backed presidents, dissolve the legislature, rewrite and impose a new constitution overseen by Roosevelt, allow foreigners to purchase land illegal since Haiti's independence, 1804, ratify a treaty granting the U.S. economic control of Haiti for 10 years, enable veto power to American representatives over all decisions in Haiti, establish the Marines as administrators, impose conscription and forced labor, press censorship, increase violence and sexual assaults by Marines, establish a disengagement agreement, withdraw after 19 years and four months, 1934, act as a debt collector for France. To be this valuable, this hated, June Jordan, this is the paradox. In the ocean where we were disposed of by drowning or shark ravaging, salt brined unmarked graves, paradoxically our freedom, the very molecules of sea womb water. We are here, we still remain, our DNA ingested and upcycled by every single organism. Our bodies extracted, ingested. This probably made your heart lurch and sink and beat and flutter all at once. If I say that in fact time is unable to absolve, dissolve, if I say 500 years ago we were bondage bodies, if I say that despite the passage of time, if I say that time in this case is measured in residence time, and that 500 years is not 500 years ago, that past horror is not past, that it is present time, if I say our ancestors are still here, we are still here. If I say that we are zombies, we are ghosts, we are traces, we are revenants. This is what it means to defend the dead, a long tragic love poem to our undead selves. Listen. This is not a poor us. It is exhausting to write about slavery, ongoing oppression, as if that's my only history or point of interest, origin. In fact, it is your history and interruption, your attempts on our life, trauma porn, as if I don't want to write about other things, banal musings. Here, we are haunting the haunted, a specter, a ghost, a revenant or a zombie. This is how you remember us as we remember ourselves. We are here, we keep coming. Can we talk about the ocean in the room? The elephants have left. Secrets submerged in brine, salt scouring wounds, flayed open flesh history. Sharks blood hungry devour bodies, self-projected 
or throne. Later, you'll fear the lack of sovereignty bestowed upon me, a birth wrong. It is what will make your corded forearm tighten, grip, fear that lifts and falls your anxiety on young flesh. I'll harm protect you first before the world inevitably does. The ocean, like the Lord and the devil, gives and takes away its memory, long, drags as it scrapes the seabed, recedes, pulled by moon, salty grief and hopes, secrets left behind, treasure-like, black torpedoed hurdle, sink, free at last, you've had dreams. This maybe is like a very basic place to start, but I'm curious how this collection started for you. Yeah, um, it's actually quite random. So when I, uh, or maybe not, but when I started at TWS, um, the writer's studio at SFU, um, I had already come in with a collection. And uh, one of the first few classes, Wade had said something about like, there's like two or three kinds of people who come into TWS, those with a project to work on, those with no idea and figure it out, and those who come in with a project and switch midway. And I'm the last one, of course. Of course, that would be me. <laughs> so we had our portfolio due in November. I, we get to October. It's Halloween. And I'm thinking, oh, I really hate these zombies. Why do I hate zombies so much? Like, I have this, this kind of a little bit of a visceral fear. And so I was thinking about it and just kind of reading about them. And then I was like, oh, yeah, they come from, from our culture. Um, I'm Haitian. And my parents didn't really talk about zombies. They kind of skirted around the issue, but you kind of absorb some knowledge and it just sits there kind of like, I don't know, those flavorful foods that you don't share because you're not sure people will like them. So you just have them at home, but they're your favorite. So it's kind of like that. And then I just thought, look at all the heavy lifting that the zombie trope does and, and that it's been a concept that's appropriated. So I thought, why don't I just work with that and see where that gets me um, as you know a project? So while I handed in my portfolio and it wasn't quite what it looks like now, but post TWS, I just started working on that. And I just, I just had a bit of a fever, it felt like, around this uh, zombie concept. So I thought, you know, why don't I explore something that that's troubling to me and that I'm uncomfortable with and, and see where it takes me. So that's how this happened. Yeah. yeah. I was really interested in, I mean, the zombies are interesting for many reasons, but yeah. I had... I had no idea that that was the that that was the history of yeah. the zombies and where they came from, and I just thought, you know, the idea of erasure obviously comes into that. That mm-hmm. somehow we've, you know, North American culture has adopted the zombie as its yeah. own, and we've completely separated it from the That's Haitian right. tradition around it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's still so much to. I mean, yeah, there are people who take the whole process. I mean, even saying zombification sounds uncomfortable to me because it's, you know, I've, I've always said my parents raised me here in, in Canada, a little bit divorced from aspects of, of our culture. I think partially because they're, um, you know, they um, became fundamentalist Christian. So this is no, no, we don't talk about this stuff. So I had zero clue and I didn't really have anywhere to ask. Like if I went and asked them, they'd be like, why are you asking us these questions? 
But, you know, one of the things I remember reading about, and I watched this documentary, and this was before I started on this project, but people would pay up to $5,000 to travel to Haiti to become a zombie and be embalmed and zombied temporarily and come back after. I wasn't quite clear what the purpose was, but, you know, just fascinating things that otherwise we're just thinking walking dead but <laughs> well that's uh, the thing right that's the, what we like are most of our associations now with zombies are that tv show like i right? don't even know that zombies of course existed before that and as yeah. in, in haitian um tradition as well but like yeah it feels like that show is just like taking over what we understand as totally zombies. Totally. Yeah. Which is <laughs> so it silly because it's, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it, it totally makes sense because when I, when I understood how zombies came to North America, it was literally uh, soldiers and Marines were given contracts to write these stories. And so they would write these short stories, including uh, William Seabrook, who wrote these fantastical novels uh, like Magic Island that fed people's imaginations and then people just ran with it, um, you know? But yeah, between the 1920s and 30s, that's when there was th this um, flooding the market with with uh, zombie literature, you yeah. know? So, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, in, in the book, you include um, quite a bit of kind of source material that you engage with. Yeah. Um, how did you find that? And what was that process like for you to engage with that material on the page? Um, it, I, I did find it challenging. Like the, the nerd part of me that loves researching loved it for the first little while. So I was just like voraciously like, you know, digging through. Like I still have, um, I'm the person who has like 260 tabs open on my phone. And I still think there are some tabs from that research. Um, but after a while, it got to be a lot. Um, and I think, like I said, the zombie, the figure of the zombie has done a lot in literature and just in explaining a lot of social ills and, and that kind of stuff. So it was starting to become overwhelming and um, trying to talk about the things that were deep culture and not really having anyone to talk about it with. Um, while sort of grappling with what that all meant became exhausting. So I, at some point, I think I took about a three-month break from, from writing and I just couldn't engage and look at it. And it was just all that was there, zombies. <laughs> I was like, I'm tired of this. Um, and there were a few times where I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, forget this. This is not this is not really the direction I want to go. But then I just picked it up again, but I did find it difficult. And I think for whatever next project, I, I will have to reimagine how I, you know, take care of myself if I, you know, deal with source material. Um, and it wasn't just source material about zombies. Like I was reading source material about um, slave ships, um, you know, digging up, you know, or finding out things like there are so many um, slave ships that are buried, but only five have actually been uncovered and researched, but like at least 300. So kind of knowing that there's all this history literally underwater that there's no, and, you know, you start thinking, should I become uh, an underwater anthropologist? Like, are, th are they a thing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
just like, you know what, settle down, Junie, like <laughs> just right. It's fine. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot. And um, yeah, I plan to, to figure, figure out better um, when I do some work like this again. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, the, the thing that came across to you was like, you were dealing with the history of, of, zombies and and slavery and racism as well mm -hmm. but the zombie also becomes this metaphor for black bodies of course right. in, yeah. in our modern society and throughout history and exactly. so i can imagine that was an exhausting process for you just to engage with that on that's on right that level. Yeah. yeah and at one point i even thought hey maybe what would be super brilliant and genius because you know i have these ideas at three in the morning um why maybe the narrator should be a zombie and i was like oh no that's too much work trying to embody that i was like actually probably i am a little bit of a zombie so it'll come through but i don't need to make it a thing but it was like i noticed that there were a lot of decisions i i made or didn't make as a result of engaging with with this material so yeah yeah yeah, I wanted to ask about um, the voice, the narrator for for poetry, because as a nonfiction writer, I'm always curious with poetry because it can become this like mask that you get to yes. play with, which is so fascinating <laughs> to me. Yeah. And um, so how did you decide which voice you were going to use for the, the poems and which narrator you were comfortable using? I just, you know, it wasn't a decision I consciously made. So I know often uh, we're told or taught or we say that, you know, we might write poetry. It's not really like there's a little flexibility with truth telling. Um, for me, yes, there's a little bit of flexibility, but I find for myself, I employ it very sparingly. Like I'd rather be as truthful as possible and where I can't, I don't include it. So omissions are a lot of, <laughs> of what I play with. Um, but, you know, you could tell that there was either mostly me as the narrator, you know, the narrator could have been at some points different ages. And then there was sort of the narrator kind of kind of looking, looking down. So I think it depended on what I was talking about. I feel like the third section, um, the narrator while speaking from a distance would most likely be me. Um, if that makes sense. But yeah, I wasn't, I didn't consciously think about like, am I, is it me? Is it somebody else? Is it, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers, but I'm not very good with like, well, who's the narrator? Because I'm like, I don't know, someone. <laughs> Someone's talking. <laughs> but there's a lot of me in there if that, if that helps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Another thing that came up for me while I was reading the book, and you actually uh, touched on it in your reading, but also in talking about the the slave ships, was the ocean and the role that the ocean plays in the mm -hmm. poems. And it's like both metaphor and setting and character. And I just wondered if you could talk about that, because it, it just really came across to me, this the, the yeah. visual and the kind of personification of the ocean. Yeah. The ocean has always fascinated me and uh, for a number of reasons, you know, like I remember one of the earliest stories my mother told me was about her being sent away um, to another family and, and for her, it was this little boat, this ocean and 
the mountains across the way. And I remember that sticking, but I, but partially is because this is the um, vehicle for lack of a better term by which a lot of us came to the Americas. Um, you know, at least from, you know, if we look at, you know, slavery and, and the, the triangle, the triangle slave trade, um, but also in terms of like my family lineage, my parents are from the Caribbean. They did cross the ocean to come here. Um, and just the, the power of what the ocean does, like it's, it's, and it's unpredictable. You can't control the ocean. Like, you know, it, it's, it's super powerful. In fact, actually, like I would say three quarters of, of um, this book was written while I was sitting in front of an ocean of or, uh, an ocean. So at, I spent three weeks um, in uh, on the Sunshine Coast. I don't know. I can't remember the community. And so I was often <clears throat> by the ocean writing or writing at night to um, just to get that the different feel and sense of what it's like to be around water and having zero control over it. Um, it's not the Caribbean. It's not, <laughs> it wasn't those things. Um, but I imagined, um, you know, what it would feel like um, crossing these kinds of waters. Um, so, yeah. So, and for me, I felt like I had to use ocean. Like it was the only way to, or it was one of the only ways to talk about what I was talking about. Um, and yeah, as, as a metaphor. So you um you mentioned that your family was kind of wanted to separate from this zombie the zombie stories and so <laughs> it seemed like through the book you were engaging in kind of your history and your origins in in maybe a way that weren't being shared with you but something that I also noticed was you engaging with the work of of black writers you um mention oh I'm gonna now I'm forgetting names. Zora. Yeah, Zora Neale Hurston. Zora Neale Hurston, thank you. I was going to reverse yeah. the last names and, and Alice Walker. And um, yes. it's, and you mentioned, of course, uh, many Black writers in your acknowledgments as well. Yes. And yeah. I, I wondered if you could talk about the influence of that history on you as you were working on the book, both like you were obviously really engaging in it with those words in some parts, but also I'm sure they were kind of in the back of your mind too, as you were working on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, like I said, I'd always wanted to write and I'd always read and it was later in, in life. So in my twenties that I actually started reading um, from, from black authors. So that was a whole like mind <laughs> whatever <laughs> um yeah it just it just blew my mind but you know the other thing was when i was actually reading um uh i was reading i read magic island just to get a sense of like how william seabrook who's not black was writing about haiti and zombies and then i've i've read zora neale hurston but i'd forgotten that she had uh, as an anthropologist a black anthropologist traveled to haiti jamaica and other uh, black communities in the states to you know research on their traditions and so it was so refreshing to read how she you know it's she still has a bit of an american perspective as an outsider's perspective of course but the care and attention just seemed so much different and made 
reading somebody else's account of zombies in, in Haiti that much more pleasant. And, you know, and I've, I think I've said this in another, in another interview, there is this thing, or I notice with a lot of the Black writers that I engage with, I mean, there's the African-American writers, the continental African writers, and then there's the writers who write from Canada. There is a particular way of writing of that sort of we're here, not here um, kind of um I guess, liminal space that you see and that we speak to around or of. And so I don't think there's any way, there's any getting away from, from that. that. That is our kind of our legacy of being here, but not. And so I appreciated what, what these writers had to say and their experiences and to, it sort of validates and you don't feel like you're talking out of your butt about something, <laughs> A, and B, it also, it's nice to know that, yeah, there, there are others out there. And while we're talking about similar things, we're all doing it in creative, wonderful, beautiful ways. So there, I did have anxiety about, like, am I doing something that everybody else is doing? Um, and, and then to say, like, no, not necessarily. We're, we're talking same themes, but we have different entry points and ways of talking about it. So... Yeah, I just felt like that was if if I didn't have these writers to call to, I think this project would have been a lot more difficult to do. Yeah. 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 And it just seems like there's been such I mean, I'm thinking back now to um, Chantelle Gibson and I spoke with her yes. last year and it just, you know, there are so many fantastic um, black Canadian writers now who are yeah. entering this space and it's so fantastic to see and and. We just need to keep celebrating this work. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's just been such a joy to see, like, like I don't know how other people feel, but certainly for me, I, it doesn't feel like a competition. Like, when I see that there are five other Black writers up for a prize or similar or other prizes, I'm just excited because it's like, okay, we're, we've been here, we are here, and, and um, you know, the work is getting recognition. Another question I had for you was even just around, you play with blackout poetry in some spots and even um, the triangle on that one page. <laughs> and I wondered how that felt for you playing with visual poetry. Was that something that you were always doing or is that something you really tried for the first time with this project? Yeah, this was the first time. And actually I have to give a, a shout out to the editors at, at Talent. So especially for the triangle, I had a whole other look. And then they came back and they're like, hey, do you want to try it this way? And at first I was like, but because they'd given me a couple options, I was like, yeah, this really works. But I had never considered visual per se. And I think partially it's just a whole bravery thing. But um, for this particular visual, the triangle one, it was like the only way for it to make sense without just... You know, like I was like, uh, how am I going to do this without without like telling? Can I just show it? <laughs> and I know the whole show tell thing is also could be seen as deeply colonial, blah, blah. Um, but I thought, you know, this would be I don't want to be sitting here going like, here's another thing for me to say and lecture on. Why don't I just present it as a, as a visual? And every time I look at it, I'm like, oh, that was pretty clever. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, <laughs> I look forward yeah. to experimenting more with visuals. Yeah. Yeah. I, do you feel like you're braver after you had talked about brave characters in fiction and you just yeah. mentioned bravery. Do you feel braver after doing this book? You know, there was a, I, I have to say the minute that um, my editor was like, it's going to press. I closed my laptop. I was like, I never want to hear about this. I even have a draft email. I don't know if he knows this, but I have this draft email going, what do I owe Talon? Can you just pull this book? Like I totally lost my shit. I was like, I have no nerves for this. Now it's out in public. It's one thing when there's a little circle of people who know I'm a poet and now it's out there. I don't know if I'm braver, but one thing I did notice is that while I think people know me as a poet, I've always wanted to write short stories, novels, that kind of thing. And I had a moment where uh, a teacher said something that forever scarred me. It was minor, but enough that I never wrote short stories. But I'm doing a fiction group with uh, Jen Curran, and I've been just churning out fiction. So we'll see what happens. So I think that's the bravery that's happening where I'm like, I can do other things other than poetry. I can write essays. Like I love writing those kinds of things. I love creative nonfiction. Um, and so I think knowing that I did this difficult project, I could probably do something else. So yes, a little more braver, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see how that pans out next year. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm sure glad you didn't send that email to Talon telling yeah. him to pull the book. <laughs> I would have felt like an idiot, sure. Yes. <laughs> I get it, though, because it's kind of like there's something about being a writer and no one really ever sees your work or being a writer to right? your like, group of friends is another exactly. thing to be a writer and you're like, your grandma's going to read it. Or That's right. Or could, not that she is going to read it, but she yeah. could. <laughs> yeah. Well, I keep going, well, my dad or my mom could, but they're kind of like disconnected from the world. So the likelihood is not the case, but I have cousins who've been going, hey, congratulations, where can I get your book? And I have to confess, I don't respond to those messages because it's like, oh, that's too close. You know, it's, it's somewhere out there. You can just Google me and you'll find where to get the book. <laughs> But that is the part that I haven't gotten over, like how to have family read this stuff, right? Like, eeks. <laughs> I don't know how other writers do it. Thanks so much to Junie for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you would like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. On our website, you'll find all the information about the shortlisted authors, as well as details about upcoming events like our storied series and the BC Yukon Book Mail Project. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Robert Amos, whose book, The E.J. Hughes Book of Boats, is a finalist for the 2021 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.